Welcome to episode four of the Different Doctor, Same Old Shit podcast. Each week we watch a story based on Doctor Order and dissect it like the beasts that we are. I'm Mo from France and to my west, it's the ever delightful and delicious Doctor L. How you doing, Doc? Bad hair day. Oh, very, very bad hair day. Um, I have completely, completely lost control um, of the outgrowth on top of my head and I need to do something about it. Other than that, um, I've had my first day off in many, 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 many days, um, and I've decided to revert to squalor and putrescence, um, as is my want. So um, you can hear me, and frankly, it's a really good idea. That it's a really good job that you can't smell me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, I can see you, which of course the listeners cannot, and in many ways, that that's close enough for me. Um, yeah, so you, you can probably see the small cloud of black horseflies buzzing around my head as well. Exactly. Um, now, the haircut, I don't find the haircut a big problem, Doc. I must say, I mean, in comparison with like the, the hideousness of your face, I, did, I, I think it's the least of your problems. I suppose um, it's sort of a bit of a human failing to... Um, when one is cognizant of a, a very, very serious failing... Um, one attempts to distract from it by drawing attention to a much more minor failing. That's true. That is true. That is true. Of course. Um, this is a this is a safe a safe a safe place. I'm not, I'm not going to bully you any further, Doc. Um, should we should we get straight to the topic? What do you reckon? Welcome to part one of the show, which we call TARDIS Talk, which is Topic of the Week. Um, so here we go, Doc. What makes a good companion, in your opinion? What you got for me? Understanding that there is nothing disgraceful about the supporting role. Um, there's nothing terrible about being the straight man. There's nothing terrible about being the bass player. Compa- when companions become problematic is when writers and occasionally performers um, forget that they are there to be a support role. Mm. Uh, yeah, um, I think that's something I, that we, we're going to have many interesting discussions about, especially when we get <coughs> into modern who, um, you know, because, you know, on occasion, and, and, and in my opinion, far too frequently, the um, companions play much too prominent a role. Yeah. And I mean, it's, in a way, I kind of think, I kind of wish there could be more spin-off series because mm. some of those characters could really support them. Um, but in the end, I'm here to watch a program called Doctor Who. Yeah, I think companions could be really good characters. Mm. Um, I also don't think they're completely necessary. In a long, 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 long while from now, we'll get to the Deadly Assassin and we'll see exactly how well that can work out. Sure. Um. I really, really, really dislike this idea that the companion has to be an audience identification character. Mm, mm. I really dislike it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would argue that when Doctor Who was at the peak of its critical success and popular success, um, the TARDIS crew um, consisted of um, a girl who was from Earth, but from the 23rd century, um, and a Scottish rebel from the 18th century. Mm-hmm. That's when it was really good. 
What, um, what about the idea that the companion kind of plays like a choric role, basically, and asks the questions that the that the audience has in their mind, but but it would be really artificial if the Doctor was just kind of saying it out loud to him to himself or herself, snowflakes, you know. Um, would, um, would, yeah, um, I actually um, attribute this statement to um, the delightful Miss Katie Manning herself, and I, I, mm. I believe it was she that once said um, the purpose of, uh, of the companion is to say, but Doctor, I don't understand, so mm-hmm. the Doctor can then explain to the audience. That's it. There is certainly a role for that kind of thing. Um, the, there is a criticism, not without justification, that um, Romana number 1... Um, was such a capable character in her own right and was sort of consistently more capable and more competent than the Doctor at doing most stuff. Mm. But that's okay. The writers realised, oh, you can have a support character. You, 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 can, you can have a guest character. Then you go a little previous to that um, and you have Leela, um, mm. who, and Louise Jemison very, very ably demonstrates that um, having a character who is uneducated and inexperienced and has to ask the doctor lots of questions because they're in unfamiliar surroundings doesn't mean that you have to patronize the character or play the character in a demeaning way sure and that idea of the of you know the the the, the companion almost kind of um superseding the doctor we we've we've seen again recently you know that that is a bit of a complaint of the last couple of seasons of modern who you know since jodie whittaker took over is that bradley walsh's character which whose name is mm, Graham, I think. Um, you know, he, he's he. It almost becomes the Graham show at times. No, no criticism of the actor, no criticism of his performance because he's great. Um, but yeah, the, 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 you know, there did seem to be um, an issue, certainly to begin with. That you know, he, he in fact he was he was almost too good, and he was overshadowing the the, the doctor's performance. Yeah, one might almost think, mightn't one, that um, having the producer still be a middle-aged white man, um, that such a person might find it difficult to fully commit to the idea of a woman being really in charge of the programme. Interesting, because Chibnall's, um, Chris Chibnall, who is the the showrunner at the the moment, he was insistent that, you know, the, the, the only condition of him taking the job was that the doctor became female? So, you, so you would think that he, that he had some really good ideas about, it. and yet, you know, the the you know the standout performance was the was the bloke. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's the strangest thing, isn't it, that Chris Ch- what Chris Chibnall evidently didn't do was say, um, you know what, there need to be more women in mm. senior positions at the BBC, and particularly in charge of Doctor Who. So, you know what, um, I'm going to take a dive on this excellent job, and I'm I'm going to recommend this person instead. Um, oh, she's yeah, the person for go. the producer's job. Oh, uh, the doc, ever controversial. Unless yeah, Chris Chibnall didn't do that either. Yeah, no, there's a very, very good point. Yeah, biting <coughs> right to the call there, doc. Very, very interesting. <laughs> Any particular standout companions for you? You, you you've already mentioned Katie um, Manning as Joe. Um, you, you, you kind of tangentially referenced, I think, Jamie and Zoe, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's easier for me to pick out the ones I don't like, um, and it works best when the you get a companion who's a synthesis of the creation of the script editor and the creation of the performer, I think. I don't think you can have a companion that works if it's just an acting job. Mm. 
um, for a disinterested professional actor? Because, I mean, it's, it's a long haul. It's a long thing to keep up. Yeah. And, I mean, I... So there's a whole bunch of companions that I really love for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, on my most recent watch through, um, I became really fond of Ian and Barbara. Mm-hmm. Um, completely took me by surprise. I became really, really, really fond of Stephen and Vicky. Okay. Um, I think uh, they're a marvellous on-screen combination. Ben and Polly do the same thing, but in a completely different way. Um, and then basically when you get to the Patrick Troughton era... Um, anything Patrick Troughton touches is gold. Um, anything Fraser Hines touches is silver. And mm. you put those two on screen at once. Um, and I mean, the two men who are, and I'm going to stick my neck out here. Um, the Doctor and Jamie and uh, Pat and Fraser are men in a homosexual relationship. Um, they're clearly very, very fond of each other. They understand that uh, each other's emotions and the way each, in, the way each other react to situations really, really well. Even if the rest of the story is no good, just watch them. They're great. No, the word homosexual. I mean, do, do you more do you more mean like homoerotic, or are you specifically no. kind of suggesting that they're having sex together? No, I'm absolutely not suggesting they're having sex together. Mm. That, that, uh, there isn't it's an erotic component. Yeah, it's um, a platonic homosexual relationship. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's two men who are very, very fond of each other. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll stop this far short of saying in love. Mm. Poor old Debbie Watling, I don't think, ever correctly fits into that dynamic. Uh, and, Doc, are we having a homosexual relationship? Um, well, if we are, it's lasted a l- much, much, much longer than most marriages. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I, quite uh, I, mean, like, I quite like the sound of it. Yeah, uh, I mean, we must be coming up to our... We, we must be way beyond our, our, our silver anniversary by now. I th- well, I, th- I, th- I, think, I think we're knocking the door on 30 years, aren't we? So whatever that yeah. would be. Um, I'll look it up later. Yeah, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think those kind of relationships exist. And um, I think that's one of them. Um, so, yeah, just going on forward a bit, once you check Wendy Padbury into that mix, um, then it becomes all kinds of wonderful. Um, oh, she, she's delightful, isn't she? She really is lovely. Um, uh, she, she really is. Mm. Um, we'll get round to talking about them properly when they appear on television. Yeah. Um, Liz Shaw is a great character whilst being a not particularly successful companion sure. um i don't get the impression caroline john was massively invested in that role no i don't I, I would tend to agree with that she's she's quite aloof isn't she throughout yeah um and besides you really you know your eyes really on the once again borderline homosexual relationship between the doctor and the brigadier mm. Um, because that's much more. Fun. I mean, um, once again, uh, you just put those two on screen together and magic happens. Mm, no, you're quite right. Um, Joe, um, I love to bits. Um, I just love the fact that um, uh, Joe is one of those characters who absolutely makes you believe um, that um, if you're brave um, and if you're willing to see the good in people, then the outcome of the situation will be good. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, yeah, just like a vortex of positivity, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and a 
constant reminder that greeting the world with naivety and not cynicism is not always a terrible way to go about your life. Mm. I, I notice all, all of these characters that, that you've mentioned are quite early in the show. Is really, is, is, are you working chronologically or is it, is it just your personal preference? Um, I'm sort of, I'm trying to cherry pick a bit. I had to stop there for a second because we're going to be doing lots of Sarah this evening. So I'll leave Sarah out of this mm. discussion just for now. Fair enough. Um, I mean, um, Harry is another really, really underrated character. Um, I wish he'd been given more to do and I wish he'd stuck around for longer. Leela, I've mentioned already, and I'm going to repeat myself, coupled with her performance by Lewis Jameson, um, is a really good example of how uneducated and inexperienced, and you may even say unworldly, um, does not necessarily have to equate to dumb and stupid and incapable. No, certainly not. She, well, um, she can certainly look after herself, can't she? Romana Mark One um, succeeds in the context of that season. Um, I think Mary Tam did absolutely the correct thing in stepping uh, in, in stepping aside because I think she'd done all you could have done or she could have done with that character. And it meant we got Lala Ward, yeah. Um, yeah. who is a candidate for my favourite performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get onto her later as well. I mean, for me, you know, I'll put my cards on the table. Romana, too, is my... I was going to say my favourite companion then for a second, but I'm I'm holding back a little. Um, is she my favourite companion? She, she she's my favourite female companion, uh, but 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 I think my favourite companion overall would be Turlo. Um, I just I just love the dynamic that he brings to the to the Tardis. I know it wasn't the best Tardis team. I know it wasn't the best era in terms of of storylines and, and and you know. And and um, popularity, but just his inclusion on board the Tardis brought brought an edge and conflict that that really made for kind of dramatically interesting choices. Um, I would agree for the first three stories until the the Black Guardian plotline wraps up, and then they right. they uh, um, they carry um, introscoptomy surgery out on him and take every, and, and and cut away all the interesting parts of his personality. <laughs> um, uh, and um, then you get my most Marmite choice, which is Perry, I think, is a terrible character, and Nicola Bryant, I think, is a wonderful actress. Mm-hmm. I have got no idea how anyone managed to make so much lemonade from the fucking lemons that poor lady was given. Mm-hmm. Any fondness you have for that character, anything memorable you can hear, you can remember that character saying, that's all Nicola. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did. It, it was a, it was a tough period, wasn't it? You know, and 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 she had a lot of of, of weight on her shoulders. I think, um, not not least because you know she was she was, I mean, clearly, you know, from 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 the opening scenes in Planet of Fire, she was she was there as eye candy, wasn't she? Really, and the writers didn't really give a damn about her. Well, we'll be getting onto this in much more detail in two weeks' time. Yeah. Um, because... Of course we will. Yeah, of course we will. I know. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Twin dilemma. Um... Uh, yeah, and then um, you'll get to see one of the nastiest examples of um, a bunch of gay men heaping their misogyny um, on a flesh and blood woman. Mm-hmm. But we'll, um, we'll save that for then. So, you know, what makes a good character, Doc? That was my initial question. Yeah, uh, and um, as usual, I uh, I overran a bit. That's all right, love. Don't worry. Um, you know, so if you could boil it down into, you know, synthesise it into a couple of sentences, what, what, what do you reckon? 
Um, synthesis. I would synthesize it by saying synthesis. Very good. It has to be, uh, a synthesis of writing and uh, of, of of the writing of the character and of the performer. Um, yeah. And you can't yeah. have you you can't have one without the other. Mm. And I think Doctor Who has done incredibly well over the first twenty seven years um, in managing to find performers who can really really inhabit the roles that they've been given. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it gets almost like um, there are certain. Uh, Katie Manning is the obvious example. Uh, Fraser Hines is the other one, um, and you almost get like a method thing going on. Uh, you, uh, you know, where the the actor disappears, and you 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 have to squint and you have to blink and remind yourself that that's actually that that's not really Jamie. Uh, that's that's right. not really Joe. Yeah, you're right. I, I, I don't believe that Katie Man Manning is a real person. I think I only think that Joe Grant exists. You're quite right. Um, no. I would also add, you know, for me, there needs to be like a genuine warmth between the Doctor. I'm contradicting myself, really, with, with my love of Turlough. But in general, there needs to be like a, genu a genuine warmth between the between the Doctor and the companion. And I also agree with the, the, a great point you made, Doc. You know, the the actor themselves themselves have to be invested in the role. You, you, you can't just have somebody come and, comes along and reads the script and, and there's no kind of passion there. That It has to matter. I mean, Nissa would be an example of, for me of, of, of somebody like that. You know, Sarah Sutton, God bless her. I don't think she gave a, a flying fuck about Doctor Who. Um, I just don't think she was experienced enough. I, yeah. I, I don't think she'd have had enough experience as an actor. Mm. Um Mind you saying that, uh, you get along to Bonnie Langford, who was an extremely experienced performer, and I don't mm. think she pulled it off either. Mm. But, um, but people, I mean, people do love Bonnie. People love Mel, you know. Um, we'll get onto that in three weeks' time. I think you're because, right. Yeah. Um, I will um, advance notice. Um, I am going to be making a very serious attempt to change the way I look at certain artefacts of popular culture when we get to the Sylvester McCoy era. Mm. Mm. Um, I'll leave it at that. I think being a companion is a job that you can be too good of an actor for. Caroline John and Mary Tam um, were probably the two best actresses who ever did that job. Mm -hmm. And I think they're two of the least successful. Sure. Um, Caroline John <laughs> being uh, Liz, um, Liz. Liz Shaw, uh, Mary Tam being Romana One. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you made reference to um, there being a genuine warmth and then you, you back down from the statement of this Turlow, I don't know about a genuine warmth. I think there's a genuine heat between Turlow and the Doctor. Ah, oh, uh, the, 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 doc's, uh, the Doc's seen homosexuality again. He sees it everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone would... <laughs> um, so I, I, I think you kind of... One of the things you need is maybe not to be a particularly good actor and maybe you have to fall back on your own personality in order to get that level of investment. It, 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 it is interesting, isn't it? You know, because not many companions have gone on to any great success afterwards, I suppose. I mean, there are exceptions. Fraser Hines being a, a, a prime example of that. Um, yeah, but it, it, it almost feels like a, a poison chalice in a way. But, but then maybe the doctor is as well, you know. Um, you know, which doctor has actually gone on to kind of great success in other things? 
I can only think of Patrick Troughton having mm. a significant acting career afterwards. Maybe Peter Davison because he did like All Creatures Great and Small and a couple of other kind of ITV kind of shows. Uh, but um, but, I need but nothing check, groundbreaking. I need to check the dates on that. I've got a suspicion All Creatures was like 77 to 81 or something. Oh, really? Like Have I got that in the wrong order? Um, I need to check. Intuitively, oh. I want to say that's the wrong way around, but ah. I'm checking later. Oh, yeah, sure. Listeners, you don't imagine we're the kind of people who do, who do our fact-checking in advance, do you? Oh, Christ, that, that would mean research, wouldn't it? And, and, and actually giving a shit and things like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Ready to move on, Doc? I, of course I am, yeah. Here we go. Jenkins? Yeah. Shout for the wings there. Five rounds rabbit. Welcome to part two of the show, which we call Five Rounds Rapid. We just make a four or five or six, whatever, we don't care, points, and we just talk about them quickly. Of course, the story we're talking about tonight is Tom Baker's debut performance in Robot, which was written by Terence Dix, directed by, um, you know, the legend that is Christopher Barry, and music by another legend in his own right, Deadly Dudley Simpson. We, we, we just, I, I just love saying that. I, I tell you why I love it so much, Doc. It just reminds me of Deadly Doug from the villa. I, I think that's the reason I love it so much. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I always think like uh, Dudley Simpson um, sounds like um, he, he should be one of the other 00 numbers. 007 is James Bond. Uh-huh. And we can take a guess that there's 001 through 6 at least. Oh, I see. So, so you've got kind of like, I don't know, 003 could be Barry Tamworth. Du- yes. 005, Dudley Simpson. Yes. Yeah, why not? I like it, yeah. 006, yeah. of course. Malcolm Hulk, no doubt about it. <laughs> Absolutely certain. Um, you don't imagine Malcolm Hulk is a bit more of a villain's henchman? Ah, well, he could be, but by the name, of course. He, he sounds like a brute of a man. Um <laughs> Who's going first, Doc? You tell me. You, you take charge for once, you lazy bastard. All right. I finished the story um, not quite knowing what to make of it. Um, it's pleasant enough. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. There's nothing to offend anybody about it. Um, but considering the the changes in the, uh, the wind and the changes in the water that are taking place during the story, so um, it's Barry Letts. Terence Dix's partnerships yeah. last story. Um, oh, is that is that is that is that right? I didn't I did not know that. Um, yeah. So um, next week um, it's the 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 classic triumvir of Tom Baker and Philip Pinchcliffe and Robert Holmes. Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. Step in. Um, and Some tar experiment, I believe, or have I got the Ark my... in space? Oh, Ark in uh, space. Good lord. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. Um, so. What I'm going to say is this is, to all intents and purposes, a John per- a, a season uh, 11 John Pertwee story that happens to not have John Pertwee in it. Mm-hmm. And the Tom Baker era doesn't start until um, uh, Dix and Letts have left the room um, and Philip Pinchcliffe and Robert Holmes are now firmly at the wheel. And the first true Tom Baker story is The Ark in Space. That seems an interesting choice to me to kind of let Barrett stick around. You know, um, I would have thought there would be be a transition during the hiatus between between seasons, and then you, you know you start with clean cloth 
from story one? You know, do, do, do you know the reason why Baralitz was was still there? There is like uh, pe- people fear new brooms um, for a good reason, um, and I don't see anything wrong. You know, when when you're having when you're having a change in your leading man, I don't think it's a completely stupid idea to keep the production team around mm-hmm. um, for one last shout. Sure. Um, I mean, it's it's the end of a bunch of other stuff as well. I know people always the the, the quote unquote unit era staggered on until I believe its last formal um, outing as the Android Invasion. But basically, this is the last unit story, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, is, I can't think of uh, where does Zygons fit in. Um, you're absolutely right. Something for me to research: Why do people think it's the Android Invasion? Is, is Zygons um, after Android Invasion? I can't remember. Uh, no, it's before. Um, okay. Zygons is the start of season 30. Android Invasion is halfway through. Mm-hmm. Um, so, right, what you've just said has completely disarmed my next point. Sorry, love. Uh, not deliberate, but, you know, it's good to get the facts straight. Sure. Um, I, I can't think of a regeneration story um, until next week that's so low-key and so completely not revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, and that's kind of my first point, really. Um, it, 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 it's it's incredible how quickly we go from um, the Doctor regenerating to being like right in the heart of the action and, and full on story mode, and it's as if the, it's as if the regeneration did not happen. Apart from the fact that it's obviously now a different man, um, you know, everything else just kind of continues as normal. Nothing to see here, no change, press on. Uh, There are parts of this where, um, yeah, um, I can't disagree with you at all, Um, apart from the fact that the Doctor is now now played by a different... Um, Tom Baker certainly doesn't go out of his way to essay the character in a particularly different way. He still does very John Pertwee-ish things. Um, Suppose it's kind of the first silly regeneration that we see. Troughton into... uh, uh, Hartnell into Troughton was was born of necessity, I suppose, and was very very low key. I mean, a, a spectacular at the time, culturally, I imagine, but in terms of what we see on screen, it, you know, it, it it it's all kind of very downbeat. Then, obviously, Troughton into Pertwee, we don't even see it if if if, if my memory is correct. Um, and I am going to stick my neck out here. Mm. I am going to say, uh, and this is point point two out of five. This is the first regeneration we see. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, th- I think you're right. I, yeah, and it's it's all a bit silly, you know. The, the and, and I think that silliness, you see, it could great, couldn't it? Could be really irritating, uh, and come across as childish. But for for me, it did not. Um, you know, I thought it was the Doctor just kind of playing with his new body, messing around with his new, with, with you know, with, with his situation within the new body. Um, and it was, but it was also a way of making the viewer feel comfortable. You know, don't worry, there's nothing grave going to happen here. We're just having a bit of fun, and everything will get back to normal in about ten minutes. And that's what happens. Um, from the perspective of, tw- of, of, of the year and w- the, the little block of years in which we're recording this, um, it's almost impossible not to watch that first episode as a very, very bold statement about the fluidity of, it, of, of identity, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I can be who I want to be, and you've got no right to tell me I can't. Sure. Mm-hmm. And very literally represented with, with, with that kind of great dressing up scene. Yes. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't know how much that was intended in the year in which it was made, but it's very, very hard not to cast that perspective on that first episode or mm. those first 10 minutes nowadays. Mm. Um, I don't know whether it was intended to diffuse... Now, we've got a void here between conception and execution. I know many people regard Planet of the Spiders as being frankly laughable to watch, and mm. I can see their point. There is a tremendous catastrophe precipitated by the Doctor interfering. The Doctor manages to fix the catastrophe kind of by accident, certainly not by being brave or clever, and he barely escapes with his life. He abnegates his identity in absolute defeat. Um, my reading of Planet of the Spiders is the Doctor doesn't regenerate because of radiation poisoning. The Doctor regenerates because um, what he was trying to do with that personality, with that body, with that incarnation, um, has failed completely. And we even get the little speech from the Buddhist monk um, earlier on um, where he says, you know, the man will look inside, in, inside himself um, and discover that he is no man to his inexpressible joy. So... Um, are you suggesting that the Doctor effectively regenerated through an abundance of shame? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, a, um, I would go so far as to say uh, non-fatal suicide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the Doctor he knew he was coming back. Yes. So he could effectively kind of press the reset button. Or in because the story is so soaked in Buddhist imagery, um, he could engineer his own reincarnation. There we go, yeah. But, mm. be but better this time. Mm. Mm. Um, but yeah, press his own regeneration button, um, do what every suicide case would really like to do, which is make this pain go away right now, stop this worthless existence, mm -hmm. but somehow get another and more worthwhile existence. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, this, yeah. of course, not being an option for most human beings. Yeah, very, very interesting, Doc. Um, and, and what we're talking about, such kind of fancy, fanciful, airy, fairy nonsense as Buddhism. Why don't we, what, let me give you my point three. Um, the Brigadier says, naturally, the only country that could be trusted was Great Britain. And then the doctor replies, well, of course, the rest are all foreign, you know, very caustic and sarcastic. And now, is this the first like, overtly woke line in Doctor Who? Doc, what do you reckon? Um, I think you could probably go back to almost anything written by um, Malcolm Hulk. Oh, yes, um, the, the, the brute that is Malcolm Hulk. Yeah. Um, I adore Malcolm Hulk, mm. um, but he can get a bit sledgehammery um, with, <laughs> ironically, the points of politics that Malcolm Hulk makes most subtly and most eloquently are the ones that have stood the test of time at the test of time and are still relevant. Sure. The points of politics that Malcolm Hulk feels the need to hammer home and make sure you really get mm. turned out not to be the world destroying threats um, that uh, that they turned out to be. I don't remember there being an invasion of giant maggots. I don't remember that happening. Um, no, and I mean, I, I, I don't know if um, many prominent environmentalists in the climate change movement. Um, would suggest that the biggest threat the world faces today um, is um, giant maggots or mm. overboring a volcano. Mm. Is that the mutants? Well, I was thinking of Inferno, actually. Oh, that's Inferno. Oh, that, of course, that's Hulk, isn't it? Of course. Yes. Yes, I, I often forget. I, do, I think I um, conflate um, 
both Ambassadors of Death and Inferno, and I, I very often think that they are they are both written by Whittaker, but of course um, I'm I'm incorrect. Inferno is credited to Don Houghton, uh-huh. uh, although I do believe Don Houghton only delivered four episodes, and the alternative Earth part um, is. Um, I, I think it's probably got some Terence Dix in it. I think it's probably got some Malcolm Hulk in it. Yeah, it, I don't, I, I, I've definitely seen an interview with Terence Dix where he does describe pulling that scenario out of his backside, basically, kind of yeah. at, at, at the eleventh hour. Yeah, very. But if Malcolm Hulk's involved, I'm not surprised because it seems right in his wheelhouse. Um, yeah, I mean, it's um, so. I mean, I, I just really need to go over that point again because I think it's a really salient one. Um, Quite soon, um, we'll get round to doing the Silurians, and mm. there are some beautiful moments of, um, I, I mean, all kinds of the personal politics um, between the humans, between the Silurians, between the humans and the Silurians, um, which are far more interesting and far more subtle um, than uh, the fact that Malcolm Hulk actually expects us to, sim- or, or the, the, the script superficially expects us to um, sympathise with a bunch of genocidalists. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, yeah. But we'll save the Silurians talk to, to, you know, to when we get to that episode. Have you got, have you got a, a point number three for us, Doc? Um, yeah, and um, I need to talk about production methods, so I'm going to have that as my point three, but I think we'll probably get to that in the section when we discuss production. Well, that's fair enough. So if I give you point number four, um, I would say it's really, really nice to see Sarah Jane actually doing some, like, you know, you know, journalism and stuff, you know? Yes, That's really lovely, really, really lovely, because I I think that kind of got forgotten uh, towards the end of um, her run with with Pertwee, you know, the last three or four stories. And she just kind of became another generic companion. And then suddenly the, the writers have remembered, oh, Actually, she's a journalist. We can make use of that and make it a key plot point. Um, yeah, and I mean, once again, as we go on through the era, uh, there's a couple of other stories where I'm really, really shocked they didn't remember that Sarah Jane was a journalist. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Because they could have mined a lot out of the plot. Um, my final point, and I know this is me not so much nitpicking as drawing attention to something that never cried out to have attention drawn to it, um, but in this season, um, it's a, more difficult to get over than any other season. Um, I think, as far as I can see, Sarah and Harry uh, do not get to sleep from now until the end of the season. <laughs> well, it's a great, it's a great point. But you know, I suppose it's just one of those conventions that we just have to accept the fact that you know maybe stuff happens off-screen that we are not aware of, you know? Um, but in this season, it can't. In this season, every episode flows from one into the next. So mm-hmm. um, after the TARDIS leaves, um, we go straight into the Ark in Space. From the Ark in Space, that runs directly into the Sontaran experiment, which runs directly into Genesis of the Daleks, mm-hmm. which runs directly into uh, Revenge of the Cybermen, one oh, yes. after another after another. And mm-hmm. the, there isn't even a TARDIS scene. There isn't a chance for a nap because they don't use the TARDIS to move around between all of that lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, um, apart from um, Sarah's very short rest break when she's in the forced labour squad in the Thal Dome in Genesis of the Daleks, mm-hmm. I don't think Sarah gets a nap between now and the end of the season. And, and, and 
what 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 time period do you think we're covering here? You know, how many how many days or weeks are we talking about? Do you think it, like, it, you know in in real terms within within the show's logic? Um, I don't know. I mean, I I suppose the events of the Ark in Space could have taken place within as little as twelve hours. Mm-hmm. Um, the events of the Sontaran experiment could have taken place within as little as twelve hours. Mm-hmm. Um, Genesis of the Daleks. I mean, it's got. That's a week, at least. That's, that's at least a week, isn't it? It involves at least three backwards and forwards across the no-man's land between Dalek territory and Thal territory. And we know that those domes are far enough apart that you can hit one with a significantly powerful atomic weapon and it won't harm the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would put that as a week, a three or four days walk, at least. Sure. Um, so I don't see those... Um, during the time of that story, the Doctor has time to um, form a um, a resistance group um, within the Khalids. Um, the Thals have time to build their rocket. I don't see that story coming in under one month. Sure. It's logical, you know. It's been a while since I've watched it, but it's totally plausible what you're saying. Revenge of the Cybermen um, takes place over 85 minutes of screen time, and I don't think those events could have filled up more than about 10 minutes of real time. But Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, <but> we, yeah. <laughs> very, very, very funny. I suppose what you're saying here, Doc, is that Sarah Jane Smith is much more badass than Kiefer Sutherland, who have only ever managed to stay awake for 24 hours, and everybody was super impressed by that. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Go, go, Sarah Jane. Um, and someday, please show me where on the TARDIS the Doctor keeps his speed machine. Mm, that's right, yes. Yeah, Pumping pump his companions full of amphetamines. What a, what a bastard that man is. Um, <laughs> um, my last point um, for this section, I like the fact that they, you know, the, 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 uh, you know our heroes, and in particular Sarah Jane, but the Doctor too, I think, um, really kind of treated the robot like a sentient creature. You know, they, 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 they understood, you know, that, that, that it was feeling pain, that, you know, they empathised with him. Um, was that a first for who, Doc? Because I can't think of an, ex- of an example before. And what about elsewhere in sci-fi? Where, where's that idea come from? Right. The closest you get in Doctor Who is Vicky was always becoming fond of hideous alien monsters. Um, mm. It was uh, it was kind of a running joke that they did in a few stories. And honestly, I wish they'd have done it in a lot more that basically they'd arrive on a planet and encounter some repulsive horror. And Vicky would immediately try to make friends with it and give it a cute name. Yeah, so I've, I've been to pubs where there are girls like that, Rich. So the <laughs> Um, yeah, but Vicky is a classy lady. Mm-hmm. Um, That's true. So, um, I get the idea that um, having an alien pet um, probably goes back to one of the borderline soap opera science fiction, US science fiction series from, from, uh, from, from the 50s, and maybe even older than that. The treatment of the robot is really interesting because mm. obviously what we're talking about here is not a, a pet or an object of affection, but it's the um, it, it's not the villain of the piece, but it is the weapon of the piece. Sure. Uh, Elizabeth Sladen said on, on on more than one occasion that she sort that she she had sort of something approaching a crush on the robot. Mm. Um, it comes across, uh, I think. I mean, Andy Circus is the 
Oh, no, probably John Hurt in The Elephant Man um, mm. is one of the very first performers I've ever heard of basically being able to express emotion without any of their own face being seen. Mm-hmm. What about like Boris Karloff? I've heard this said. I've never quite got it. I, I've never mm. quite understood it myself. Okay, fair enough. I think Malcolm Kilgariff um, gives a really, really sympathetic use of body language um, and is able to anthropomorphise the creature and have it communicate emotion. And, and, and quite remarkable, given the actual you know, construct of the machine that he was encased with. We'll, we'll get to that when we get to the production, I'm sure. But, you know, to actually, to actually be able to invoke any kind of emotion from, for, you know, for, from, a, from a design like that is, it, 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 it's quite remarkable, really, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Have you, have you got a last point, Doc? Can you think of a Doctor Who story as apolitical as this one? Well, I mean, that, that, again, that is a point that, that, that I've got set in the next section. Um, but, but, but certainly yeah, the politics are very, very interesting. But, but should we save that for the next bit? Um, I think we should save that for the next bit, and I think we should get into that next bit right now. Let's do that. Commander, you are authorised to use the mind probe. What? No, not the mind probe. Welcome to part three of the show, which we call, oh no, not the mind probe. Um, here we really talk about poli- a bit of politics, maybe, payoff from the show, things that influenced the show, things that were influenced by the show. Clear? Um, broadcast dates. Um, first episode, 28th of December, 1974. Fourth episode, 18th of January, 1975. Come on, the doc. Any any thoughts here? Any any politics shenanigans you want to get into? Any influences that you see? It's almost politically apolitical. Um, the the SRS, the Scientific Reform Society, does not resemble any political any political organization in the world at that time, or I think at any time in history. Mm-hmm. Um, it's painted up to look vaguely like the sort of political organisation that might only exist in the world of a programme like Doctor Who. But, I mean, it doesn't remotely resemble the Red Army faction um, or any of the terrorist organisations that were causing trouble in Europe at the time. Um, It certainly doesn't even remotely resemble any of the insurgent organisations that were, by the end of 1975, going to be causing some real trouble in other parts of the world. We're explicitly told... It's an organisation made up of people such as junior lab technicians and random cranks. From the SRS meeting that we get to see that's going on, once again, from the perspective of 2020, um, it's the... um, The only word I can think of is that the the kind of people you would classify nowadays as incels, um, the chronically insecure men... Um, who believe they have been done done out of something that they are, for some reason, entitled to. Sure. We don't get to see any evidence of why these people can believe that they should be in, in charge of the world. Mm-hmm. We don't get to see what would make them so good at that job, even in their own minds. We don't get to see them being brilliant. We don't get to see them being great leaders. They're just um, big bullies, aren't they? Just big bullies. Well, they're not even big bullies. That they're, they're, they're a bunch of random weirdos who meet mm. in a really shabby church hall. Mm. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's a point that I made 
um, on my notes here for this episode, I think it's a deliberate choice by Terence Dix to kind of sow confusion and doubt in the mind of the viewer politically, um, because ostensibly, you know, the, the intentions of, of, of the SRS could be argued to be like, a, like, a, like an arch left wing agenda. You know, you know, saving the planet from the tyranny that is that is the human race. Um, but the way that they behave has the all all of the kind of overtones and hallmarks of a you know hard right fascistic group. You know, the the, the way they speak, the, the the uniforms, the emblems, but all of this every, kind of stuff. But every single thing about it is performative, isn't it? Um, it's, it is. Um, I mean, they they use like the. Um, their logo is made from the the sig sig the the, the double sig ss symbol mm-hmm. um and they have nazi what well, sort of nazi pattern uniforms that look like their moms made them yeah and it, it's it's all intentionally i think very silly very very performative mm-hmm. um, big saft lads playing dress up mm-hmm. stuff i don't think any of those people really in what I don't think any of those people at that SRS meeting really believe they stand a chance of taking over anything more than the toilet cubicle they're having a wank in at that very minute. Ah, uh, I mean, you know, the reason I call them big bullies, but but I do take your point that you know, maybe you know, maybe that's kind of giving giving them far too much credit. Is I think there is almost like a, a parallel in modern society, um, and that would be Antifa. You know, like 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 the the group that kind of loosely identifies itself as Antifa you know, anti-fascism. And it seems to me, everything that I've seen or read about Antifa, is it's exactly the same thing. As you described, Doc, you know, a bunch of kind of pathetic incel men um, get together in a group, ostensibly for some kind of just cause, and just act like a a bunch of, I'm trying to be erudite, but but I can't, just a bunch of daft twats, basically. I think it's also worth making the point this would not have been the case in 1975. The SRS meeting we go to looks quite a lot like a Doctor Who local group meeting. That's interesting, isn't it? Raise hands. I've been to many, many Doctor Who local group meetings. Um, I enjoyed every single one I went to, and when I stopped enjoying them, I stopped going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Been to many of them, enjoyed all of them, um, met many, many good people um, who stuck with me throughout my whole entire uh, entire life, and I've also met my fair share of obese in cells with personal hygiene problems. Mm-hmm. Sure, um, mm-hmm. the, 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 you know that that um, that stereotype is there for a reason, isn't it? Within who fandom, because those those guys definitely definitely exist. They certainly do exist. Yeah, um, and I was I'm always left in in, in Askins, and if I could tolerate to talk to any of these people, I'd really like to ask them, what is it about Doctor Who that attracts you to, like, literally, what do you get out of watching this programme? Mm-hmm. Um, what part of the personality that you flaunt or that you project um, would make you feel, would make you want to watch a programme like Doctor Who? Mm-hmm. Um I don't even get what you get out of it. I mean, presumably it's just the uh, pure escapism, isn't it? We've had this discussion before, and you can ask 10 different Doctor Who fans what ten what Doctor Who means to them, and you'll get 11 different answers at least. Yeah. 
um, because at least one of those 10 people will, will, will have bipolar disorder. It obviously means something very different to nearly everybody else who watches it. Um, I am left utterly in askance as to why a bunch of people so resentful, uh, xenophobic, and by xenophobic, I don't mean hating foreigners, I mean hating anything that's different. Mm-hmm. That hate-filled, that bitter, and yet with that sense of entitlement, I don't understand what part of Doctor Who they feel it is that that, that speaks to them. Mm-hmm. Um, unless it's the absurd power fantasies that we see the SRS members acting out. My, my last true engagement with Doctor Who fandom... Um, it was probably about six or seven years ago. I worked with a guy who was a massive Who fan, and he was talking about, you know, he did the, the, he attended meetings. By that point, I'd long, you know, 15 years since I'd attended any kind of Doctor Who meeting. I've never been to a convention, nor ever. You know, I've no interest in collecting autographs or anything like that. Um, but this guy, you know, he, he seemed like an affable enough chap. If, if like, socially awkward... That's, so what? Who cares? It's social. Who cares? Um, and then, what, then one day he came in and he was like, "Oh, look at this! Look at this!" And he got, he took his phone out and he started showing me hardcore pornography of women dressed up as in, in like Doctor Who costumes. And I just said, to him, "I said, mate, what what makes you think I, I, I want to look at? First of all, ask me first. Don't just thrust that in my face." Um, you know, but just, you know, I'm no prude doc, you know, I am no prude. I've, I've enjoyed pornography, no problem with pornography, but don't just assume that that, you know, that, that that's what somebody else is in the mood for right at that moment. Baffling. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's socially awkward and, um, there is a grasp of social, uh, failure to grasp the rudiments of social skills that goes far beyond I recognise as anything as, as, as acceptable human behaviour. Mm. Tell you what, Doc, I reckon we've just ditched <laughs> 60% of our audience during this conversation. But you know what? That's fine by me because, you know, if, if, if you know anybody not open to this kind of discussion, frankly, I don't care. Um, I think we will have ditched those people by, I suspect if they managed to get to the end of the first episode and discovered with horror that we hadn't begun to talk about our merchandise collections yet. That's true. You're quite right. Uh, Go on, Doc. Have, have you got another point? Um, I'm going to use this as a springboard to talk about the performative nature of the story. Mm. So we've got a villainous organisation, um, which isn't remotely villainous. Apart from the robot, um, they present no threat whatsoever. It wouldn't take... Um, one policeman could easily mop up the whole entirety of the SRS. Um, Equally, I don't know what we're supposed to make of the character of Hilda Winters. Um, Hilda Winters comes across as um, the two Ronnies doing a parody of uptight old Tories who feel thoroughly threatened by by feminism. Mm. I can really imagine Hilda Winters being in a two Ronnie sketch um, as the leader of some sort of future f- 
feminist fascist Great Britain where men have to wear dresses or something. She's she's a parody of a, of, of a character. Um, I know really she's only there um, effectively because occasionally when you have a weak story, you have to have a pathetic straw man figure for, for, for the Doctor to knock over because there has to be a villain for the Doctor to, to knock over. And in this story, we get a pathetic villain for Sarah to knock over. Mm-hmm. Um, um, because it's a regeneration story. <clears throat> the Doctor's still finding his feet. Tom Baker's still finding his, uh, his, his feet. So basically, we get a story where Sarah gets a villain of her own to defeat all by herself. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm sure Liz Sladen was was happy to be, you know, to be given a, you know, such a meaty role in this story. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm going to sort of carry on with with, with this theme of, of of the whole story being performative, and once you accept that, then suddenly it takes on a remarkable power, um, because it makes sense of the fact that the tank is clearly a toy. It makes sense of the fact that the robot wobbles. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can shift yourself sideways into almost a parallel universe where stuff that looks cardboard and performative in this universe um, looks complete, that's, that's what reality is like in this slightly parallel universe. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> in this slightly parallel universe, <clears throat> the SRS are a genuinely dangerous gang of thugs who will kill you. Hilda Winters is a genuinely charismatic, genuinely powerful political leader who stands a really good chance of taking over the country. Um, the robot really is an awesome, terrifying construction of steel and silicon um, with a highly destructive ray gun. Um, and that tank really is a conqueror tank. No, honest, it is really. Yeah, it, 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 it's interesting. Reminds me of an old um, kind of weird and wonderful story uh something like that the comic was called you followed um an alien invasion of earth from the point of view of the aliens and they were like super powerful super confident um and it's only as they entered earth's atmosphere and and and, and tried to attack something that we realized that they are you know kind of the size of gnats basically you know so so just you know totally irrelevant so again kind of performative you know from, from their standpoint they were all powerful um, but in reality, on Earth, you know, in, 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 from that perspective, they were they were insignificant. So here's my theory: Are we supposed to be watching the whole story through the eyes of the newly regenerated Doctor? Well, that that, that was exactly my next point. Yeah. Are, are we seeing it through this filter because the Doctor isn't quite, you know, he, he, his head isn't quite screwed on yet? Or maybe the Doctor is. And maybe that's how the new Doctor really sees human beings. The mm. Doctor is now completely over his assimilationist mm-hmm. phase in the John Pertwee era. Yeah. Um, he's no longer interested in fitting in. Um, his exile is over. He's squared himself, he's, he's squared himself away with the Time Lords. Uh, he's got the TARDIS working again. And he has been through, he's, he's, he's been through the shame barrier. Mm. Um, and he's, he's, he's excoriated his... Um, I'm going to quote from D.H. Lawrence now. It's about time. We, we were in episode four and you haven't quoted D.H. Lawrence yet. Good Lord. Come on. Well, um, I'm just going to make a reference from uh, to Lady Chatterley's lover um, when Constance um, submits to um, uh, to a bit of back alley action um, 
and uh, says, she would have thought any woman would have died of shame, instead of which it was the shame that died and she was left shameless. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, and that's the doctor. We have, yeah. Um, and he's, he's been through this excoriating shame barrier at the end of Planet of the Spiders. <clears throat> um, and um, suddenly he's looking around and he's no longer seeing significant threats and a well-organized military and a place he wants to be. He's seeing a world of cardboard villains, um, idiots in cosplay, plastic human, tanks. Yes, human weaklings. Robots. Yes, human weaklings, yes. insignificant weaponry, you know, te- so kind of everything is beneath him, effectively. After the story, the next time the Doctor is on contemporary Earth again, um, in Terror of the Zygons, and then pretty much in The Seeds of Doom, uh, he just gets more and more and more openly contemptuous of, 20, of, of, of Earth in the 20th century. Mm, mm. Um, in the Seeds of Doom, in the Seeds of Doom, he says at one point, basically, why is this my problem? Mm-hmm. Why are you coming to me? You know, you, you people are going to have to take care of this stuff sooner or later. So he's um, had enough. So he's tried to guide them. He's tried to guide, well, us, he's tried to guide us. And we're not listening. And, and, and finally, his kind of patience is wilting. It's something that comes along with the new regeneration. Mm. Um, if you take it back even further, um, the majority of the Third Doctor's era was an exile. It was a period of, um, and criminal justice is supposed to be a combination of punishment and risk management and offender rehabilitation. Um, so effectively, he's, he's been punished. The Time Lords have managed the risk by keeping him on Earth. Um, he has been rehabilitated somehow, and all of his accumulated guilt from before an unearthly child, whatever that might have been, um, several years of living an on-the-run existence as a wanted criminal. He got caught, he's been to jail, he's been rehabilitated, mm. um, he's learned some carpentry or something like that. The parole board has decided that he's now paid his debt to society. Um, and, you know, the slate is wiped clean. You're no longer on the run. All previous crimes forgiven. Um, you've done your bit. You've proved yourself. And is this the first time we're witnessing the doctor, just like the members of SRS, with the sense of entitlement that he feels he can now behave like a Time Lord? Sure. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question because you can imagine, you know, once those shackles are removed... You know, it, 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 he, he, he kind of does well to kind of rein in, rein in his instincts as well as he does, really, because, I mean, you know, imagine if you've been exiled, you know, or imprisoned for five years and suddenly you're free. You know, it, it would be very easy just to go crackers, wouldn't it? Um, well, not merely free. Um, it isn't the idea that um, the doctor comes out of jail with with a paper bag containing the clothes he was wearing when he went in jail five years ago, and that's mm. it. Mm. Um, no family, no job, um, no prospects. Um, the doctor comes out of jail, and he's got a fucking time machine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At the moment, we're uncertain about what the personality is, but as we'll very shortly discover, this very, very confident, very domineering personality. Mm. Um, mm. And, yeah, um, it might be a sore temptation to suddenly start throwing your weight around. Sure, yeah. Um, any influences, Doc, that you can that you can spot? You know, you know, where do these ideas come from, and or anything that, that that kind of fed from it? 
I've got a couple to start us. I was thinking the Prime Directive um, from Star Trek, and, and also from, of course, Robocop lifted it too. Um, you know, this idea that the, that the robot has like, clearly defined parameters of behaviour, um, that, 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 that if it tries to, if it, if it tries to override them, causes it great pain. Um, that is something we see in Robocop, certainly. But, but I think it also does tie in with like the Prime Directive in Star Trek, the Federation. You, you, you know, you, you, there are rules to follow. There are you know, things we have to do. What do you think about that? So at its most obvious level, um, I do believe it comes from Asimov. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe it, it, it comes from Isaac Asimov's rules of robotics. Um, so fundamentally, that a robot must preserve itself. A robot must not harm humans, and um, a robot must not permit rule number one to cause rule number two to be broken. Something like that. Um, they've they're now like almost in popular psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> there's an interesting meditation to be had, and the story doesn't have it on. Um, whether on uh, on what's going to happen once anarchy is achieved. Um, so there can be two possible outcomes from anarchy. Um, and any objectivist listening to this, you're a bunch of fucking idiots and piss off. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two possible outcomes from anarchy, starvation or society. Um, I think that society is by far the most likely one. Society came from nowhere. Society came from anarchy in the first place. Sure. And sure. as far as I'm concerned... If there was ever anarchy ever again, the logical outcome would be civil society. Okay, yeah. You, um, you just think that's kind of baked into human nature to, to form communities and societies? It might not be human nature. Uh, I'm not saying the, the new wave of societies would resemble the ones we have so far, but um, survival is baked, is baked into all living organisms. Yeah. And human beings being comparatively wimpy creatures sure. with comparatively big brains. Um, figure out pretty quickly that their greatest survival advantage can be achieved through civil society. Well, yes, we, you know, we, we have small teeth and small claws, but uh, if we work very together... Very long gestation period. Very long gestation period, and also a very long reliance on our on our, on our uh, mother in particular. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if, if, if we work individually, we, we, you know, we, we are likely to die, but if we work together... You know, we can take down animals with much bigger and sharper claws and teeth than we've got. That's right. Yeah, um, I get it. So, I, I mean, um, and th- there's there's a meditation in that. Um, so, effectively, when when the robot is created, um, the robot realizes pretty quickly that it has no obligation to obey any human laws. Um, it possesses a weapon of mass destruction, and it can't be easily harmed by any human me- weapon of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no reason why the robot has to obey any human laws unless it perceives a good in doing so. Sure. And sure. I don't buy this business about um, it's in the robot's programming. In human beings, any amount of indoctrination, education, inculcation can be overcome. And it's normally fear that stops people from overcoming it. Mm-hmm. Once the robot realizes it's got nothing to fear, all this business of, you know, it, it doesn't immediately set about doing whatever the hell it wants. And what we're getting back to now is your original question, influences on this. Mm. Um, I stomped on you a little bit earlier on and stopped you talking about something that you were going to talk about, for which I apologise. 
um, because I feel the need to bring it up now. Um, everyone talks about King Kong being an influence on this story, um, which it kind of is on the last ten minute in the last ten minutes of episode four. But I think Frankenstein is a far more interesting influence. I've made a note for this episode: King Kong, oblique stroke, Frankenstein. That's my bullet point. Frankenstein has been read many times as a feminist meditation on the attempts of men to obviate women, um, effectively to supplant the female reproductive role. Mm. And, you know, it starts off as a bad joke. Um, what do men need women for anyway? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, babies. Yeah, so, and, uh, yeah and, and this was kind of the inversion Alien did so brilliantly, wasn't it? You know, you know yes. kind of, it made, you know, made the men kind of the, the gestators and, and, you know, and, 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 and terrify, you know, absolutely terrified a generation of men, effectively. Yeah, I mean, um, very, very successfully, I think, yeah. um, made, um, presented female sexual predators. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is one of those silly role inversion comedy things that you've seen going right the way back to films like Catwomen on the Moon mm. um, and Devil Girl from Mars. And don't um, forget uh, Junior, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. You are going to have to tell me more about that. <laughs> it, it, it's just a, it, it, just a terrible comedy starring Arnold Schwarzenegger in which he gets pregnant, I believe. My knowledge of shit 90s comedies is far greater than yours, unfortunately, Doc. Mate, there's no way you're not going to convince me that... <laughs> I, mean, I bet you if you put Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> in a comedy, the genius will just happen. Absolutely. How could it not? Just, just a, 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 a ball of mirth, that man is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, oh, Doc, I distracted you. Sorry, sir. No, I was just sort of going to say, you've, you've got a villain who I have previously described as resembling um, a character from a two Ronnie sketch um, aimed at provoking Daily Telegraph readers who feel terribly threatened by feminism. Mm. Um, and one of the things she participates in doing, achieving reproduction without sexual intercourse and without the involvement of a woman. Mm -hmm. There are political messages in here, or the, the, there's, there's political content in here, but they're thrown about so loosely and so flabbily. <clears throat> and the whole thing is a bit like Frankenstein's monster, really. The whole thing is assembled from such an oddly mis mismatched collection of leftover parts. Mm. Um, apart from shambling jerkily around, um, I don't think it's capable of doing very much. Um, there's a really, really weird uh, piece of uh, a phraseology in use here. Um, the... Um, the overground version of the evil organization um, is called Think Tank, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a weird choice of words in its own right. Um, I need to find out exactly what the words Think Tank connoted in the, the mid-70s. By the 1980s, um, Think Tanks were what embittered right-wingers had instead of research universities. What about, what about the Enviro message here, Doc? You know, I was thinking about, um, I mean, obvious things like the Green Death, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, you know, the, the, you know, the precursors to, to this. Um, did, did anything, anything, anything along those lines occur to you? 
Um, this story has an environmental message that is slightly less potent than the environmental message in um, The Forbidden Dance. Pollution is, like, bad. Oh, yeah. and, <laughs> and not good. Oh, um, dear. Oh, dear, I, the doctor's um, cross. Oh, no. Um, I'm not remotely <laughs> cross. Um, I've long since stopped being cross at greenwashing. Yeah. Because... Um, if you plan on subjecting yourself to mass media from the 1970s, you're going to see a lot of greenwashing. Mm. And if you get cross at all of it, you're going to spend far too much of your time being cross. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Um, very funny answer, Doc. Very, very funny answer. Um, any other influences or messages or political stuff that you, that you want to uh, talk about before we, before we move on to the final part of the show? There are some, and I have, I've tried, I promise I've tried really, really hard to bash them into some sort of coherent narrative. Mm. What are these writers trying to communicate to us? What should we take away from the story? And the gap between the micro and macro politics on this and the crudity with which the political components are assembled makes it almost impossible to do anything with this. Um, on the one hand, we've got a sort of message about how fascism is like, yeah, bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got another message about, um, for me, the one that I find really poignant is small acts of kindness can be much more important than you think they are. I mean, you've asked me a direct question, really, there. I mean, you kind of phrased it rhetorically, but, you know, in a way that, that, that I can answer directly. You know, what, what were the writers trying to uh, convey or ask of the of the viewer? For, or, or, or what was the message that, that they were trying to communicate? For me, there were two, really. Um, and maybe they're just cock obvious, and, that, and that's fine. But, but, the, but these are the messages that, that I took from it. Message number one, um, you know, be, be kind and lovely to everybody and everything, because you never know, um, you know, uh, you never know what response you're going to get and how wonderful they could be. That's message number one, I think. Message number two, I think, would be um, that the you know the far left and the far right are just as daft as each other, and they meet in the middle in that in you know in the centre of the Mobius strip. For, for, for me, that 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 was the message of the story. Yeah, I mean, I I will probably it's it's one of those stories which I've changed my mind about a lot. Mm over the years, what it might be trying to say. And the only thing I really think it wants to say to us is um, little acts of kindness can be more important. Um, so um, effectively, the the story is brought to a happy conclusion by the fact that much earlier on in the story, Sarah was nice to the robot. That's right, yeah. That's when right. nobody else was. And, and, and you just never know what will happen if you, if you do that, basically. Yeah, yeah. It, it's lovely, Doc. Lovely. Are we, are we ready for part four? I think we are. Let's do it. Overweight under Pardo Museum piece. Welcome to part four of the show, which we call Overweight Underpowered Museum Piece. This is all about production, costumes, effects, direction, etc. Um, I'll start, if you don't mind. The robot design, Doc. What were they thinking? What, um, what what on earth what, what on earth was going on in their minds? I, I I am not a person that is troubled by dodgy design, by wobbling sets, by 
you know, cronky spaceships and wobbly, gribbly aliens. No problem for me. It's a good question, isn't it? Mm. Um, each individual part of the robot um, is a beautiful piece of model making and a beautiful piece of engineering. The amount of work, um, I've seen the prop, um, and if you get up close to it, the amount of care and attention that's been taken on assembling it and riveting it, um, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, and it's evidently the work of very diligent craftsmen and very dedicated model makers who spent a ton of time on it. And they must have been horrified when Michael Kilgariff strapped on the suit and started walking around. You know, it's one of those things that, oh my God, what is that? What yes, does that look yes. like? Sure. Mm -hmm. um, has there been a successful anthropomorphized giant robot in the history of television and cinema? Hmm. I think people would point you towards Iron Giant, um, which is an animated movie. I've never seen it, so I can't comment on it, but people do love it a lot. Other than that, which is actually anthropomorphized. I mean, everyone always talks about the one in Forbidden Planet, don't they? Well, that's true, but, it, 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 you know, I mean, by modern eyes, it looks preposterous, doesn't it? That's the problem. And I... I think it would have looked preposterous in the 1950s. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, an equivalent would be, you know, the, 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 the robot from Lost in Space, I think would be yeah. pretty similar. Um, of course, you have the... Um, oh, I mean, maybe this is the answer. What about Marvin the Paranoid Android from Hitchhiker's Guide? The movie version, I like a lot. Mm -hmm. The movie version, I think they came up with a design that... that um, did a good job with the character the communicator the character the bbc as as much as i like the bbc television version mm. their marvin is another fuck awful piece of design and i don't mm. know whoever thought that looked remotely good sure yes um, yes I did, when, when i think of that character i don't really think about the design i think more about the voice and delivery you wouldn't be the first person you wouldn't I suspect you wouldn't even be the one millionth person who said that Hitchhiker's Guide works far better on radio than in any other medium. For sure, yeah, undoubtedly. Um, so um, I'm also, because of my fondness for appalling 1950s Z movies, um, I'm thinking of Devil Girl from Mars as well, um, which um, was introduced to me by uh, a chap um, who said, you know, it, it's... It's a terrible movie, um, and unforgivably, it's terrible because it's boring. Mm. Um, in the end, the only thing you can say about it really is, but did you see that fucking robot? <laughs> <laughs> um, what, about, uh, it, what about Claw 2, Doc, from, um, oh, what was that called? The, 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 the Day the Earth Stood Still, I think. Oh, yes. What about that one? I suppose you're getting close now. I think... What we're coming down to is, for all that they don't sound like they should be very difficult to get to work, giant robots seem to be very, very difficult to get to work mm -hmm. in live action. Um, you mentioned the Iron Giant. Um, of course, very frightening and very effective giant robots have a long and noble history in, for instance, Japanese animation. Of course. Um, I'm not sure if I would care to see any of those designs executed as live action. But, but those robots you're talking about, like the mechs, are they, would, would you describe them as anthropomorphized? Because to me, when I think of the anime mechs, 
they are they, you know they've got no personality they are just weapons sure um you would have to ask someone who knows a lot more about the um and i know there are people i know there's an absolute ton of this stuff and it's a lifetime study probably even to memorize all of the titles let alone to memorize all of the detail um of all of the different series um so what i'm going to say is now to answer your question um mecha anime is probably a study equal in size to the study of doctor who mm -hmm. um and i'm not even going to play with that well no, and i think you might be underestimating you know because i you know i know that you know many anime series run into eight nine even a eight nine hundred even a thousand episodes you know they go crazy don't they yeah yeah for sure um, um so time for me to shut my mouth on that subject before i put my foot in it no no no, 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 no i don't blame you at all what about the location work here doc i, I thought it was great yeah and um i need to reverse myself and, and, and augment myself here i believe i said that the santaran experiment was the first time that doctor who was made using all videotape i had completely forgotten this story mm. um, perversely the last regeneration story we saw was the first and only time that Doctor Who had been made all on film. Sure. This regeneration story is the first time, but not the last, that Doctor Who was made all on videotape. Oh, there we go. That's a nice parallel. Yeah. Um, and we get some advantages and some disadvantages. The key disadvantage, of course, is that the location videotape makes the robot look even worse than it would have done on film. That's, that's certainly true. No doubt about it. I mean, it just it looks so shonky, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and, and that and that is definitely an artifact of the of the medium it's being filmed on, isn't it? Well, the medium it's being filmed on doesn't help. Um, they use location videotape in the Seeds of Doom, um, and the monster doesn't look doesn't look nearly that bad. No, um, no, but, but the crinoid doesn't look great, does it? Let's be honest. Um, well, it, no, um, it wobbles a bit too much. It does. It certainly does. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that's the we we forgive Doctor Who its wobbliness, don't we? Yes, we do. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, you know, the Seeds of Doom wasn't called Crinoid. Mm -hmm. we're, we're reviewing a story <laughs> at the moment called Robot. Robot. Yeah. And it needs to have the fucking robot front and centre uh, yeah, uh, as, right. as an artefact of the production. Mm -hmm. And, oh my goodness, that shiny um, built for football um, outside broadcast videotape really doesn't do the, the, that, that poor robot any favours. I think, I mean, it's not like Christopher Barry's a bad director. Christopher Barry's one of the top five directors of the 60s and 70s. Sure, mm-hmm. Um, and if he can't do anything with the poor robot, um, I can't imagine an, an, anyone else doing anything with it either. What about Derek Martinus, your, 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 your favourite? But sooner or later, you've got to put that prop on screen. I mean, mm. um, let's say, what well, I, I think Derek Martinus um, would have shot it in bits and pieces. He'd have done a lot of POV, mm. or a lot more POV. I think he'd have used the cinematography to... <coughs> Gorp at the beautiful quality of the machining and the production on the costume. Um, I don't think he'd have given it so many <clears throat> mid shots where you get to see the robot stomping around and wobbling. Yeah, it's like flap, flapping around, it, it's kind of feet and hands all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously out of control. Yeah. Yes. Very interesting. Um, 
Any final thoughts, Doc, before we before we wrap this 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 shit show up? It's a nice way to meet Tom Baker, mm. except of course, by the end of the story, we've spent next to no time with the Doctor. We still don't know. We still don't know anything about him, and it's it's not a waste of time. Um, it brings absolutely nothing new to the Doctor Who table. Mm-hmm. On the other hand. Um, it brings a new doctor to the table after five years, and maybe that's enough. Yeah, yeah. The, the, um, for me, I, I think it kind of does what it sets out to do, which is yeah. to establish the new doctor. Um, you know, how, however rudimentary that is, I think it also reestablishes Sarah as a character. You know, by kind of putting her front and centre, really much more so than the doctor. Um, yeah, and. It also kind of gives the audience the sense of kind of comfort that, you know, you know, it, 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 it's a new season, it's a new Doctor, but you know what? You know, units here, the Briggs here, the characters you love are here. We've just changed the face of the main character. You can sit yeah. back and relax after Grandstand, basically. And that is a really good point. Yeah. Because if ever you're thinking to yourself, well, um, you know, there's 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 a new man in charge. Um, we expected something radical. We expected something different. When do we get a difference? When do we get a change? When do we get a radicality? The answer, folks, next week. Yeah, you're quite right. You're quite right. Are we done, Doc? I think we are. Yeah, yeah. Really, really enjoyed that. A great story, I think. You know, I mean, not one of my favourites, but certainly one that I'm not reluctant to reach for. Um, I enjoyed it quite a lot. Yeah, me too. Mm. Um, um, but then I always have. It's it's one of those stories that's special because of its complete lack of specialness, mm. um, and you know, it, it's it's one of those stories that always lurks right right around the middle of my ranking list all the time. It, it is like a mid album headbanger, isn't it? You know, it, yes. It, it, it's not going to fill the mosh pits, and it's not going to enter the dance floor. But you know. Nobody's going to complain when it's on, basically. That's right. What do you reckon? Um, okay, that about does it for this episode of DDSOS. Join us next time when we'll be discussing Peter Davison's first story this time, Castrovalva. Braveheart, Doc. Braveheart. And will I need it, oh goodness. Good Lord. <laughs>